You're listening to Intelligent Data, a podcast by Proficient. Proficient is a global digital consultancy that's transforming how the world's biggest brands connect with customers and grow their businesses. Throughout this series, you'll learn how valuable data is today and how it can transform your business. And now here's our host, Arvind Morali, Data Chief Strategist and Principal at Proficient. Hello, and thank you for listening to Intelligent Data. In this podcast, you will hear the data ops guru, Christopher Berg, talk about concepts such as data SecOps, data GovOps, and key KPIs used to identify if data ops is successful. We talked about the similarities and differences between DevSecOps and data ops. Chris's team and datakitchen.io are speaking out loud on the importance of data ops, and it is critical for the data leaders to pay attention to this. Hope you have some fantastic takeaways from our show. Take a listen. Data ops, an intersection of lean manufacturing, agile, DevOps, helps improve speed of deployment to operationalize an end-to-end data and analytics pipeline. Data engineering and analytics must keep up with the speed of software development since everybody is talking about data being the future of personalization. There's no one better to talk about this than the guy who founded datakitchen.io and built a platform around data ops and contributed to the data ops manifesto, Christopher Berg. Chris, welcome to the Intelligent Data Podcast. Uh, Thank you. I'm happy to be here to talk data ops today. Awesome. Can you introduce yourself, Chris, and, you know, what's your background? How did you end up in the field of data ops? In fact, about the manifesto, just give us a brief overview of your background. So I guess the summary is I'm an old data nerd. And so my background is it comes in a couple of phases. So I was a working class kid, grew up in Wisconsin, taught in the Peace Corps for a few years. And then I spent about 15 years building software kind of at organizations like MIT and NASA and then startups that did sort of marketing analytics. And I wrote a lot of code and designed a lot of code and managed teams. And then when my kids were small in about 2005, I thought, oh, this data and analytics thing is really cool, but it's kind of easier than software. I'm going to go join a company that did that. And it turned out it wasn't easy at all in my software engineer arrogance. And so I had people who did now what we call data engineering and data science and data viz who I worked with. And I was the COO. I was in charge of making the trains run on time. And we had thousands of users of our system and and things broke all the time. The data was wrong. The data was late. We could never actually get enough insight to people. They just had an unending series of questions about the model and the data. And finally, we had hired all these really smart people and they loved the tools that they use. You know, I don't ever want to have a Python versus R or Visual ETL versus SQL discussion ever again in my life. People love their tools and in some ways should have the freedom to do it. And so when we sold that company about 2013, we realized that the sort of same pain my co-founders and I had is actually generalizable to everyone who does data and analytics, that we all suffer from these same sort of problems that, you know, the things are breaking. We can't really go fast enough and innovate. And there's just a plethora of tools. And how do you live in that world? And so we started a company, got it going and realized that sort of five, six years ago, no one kind of knew what we were talking about. And we'd go to conferences and, you know, I'd wear a chef jacket and a chef hat and we'd give out wooden spoons and we'd talk data ops. And most people thought we were just aliens. In fact, we had some people laugh at us, which is, (laughs) you know, not very heartening. But, you know, we got some attention and we had to write a manifesto to sort of say, this is what we mean. We had to blog a lot and to kind of describe what the field is. And so I think we've just spent a lot of time trying to describe the ideas in as clear a way as we can. And we've 
rolled it up into a book. And I think, you know, if you Google data ops, sort of the first four things are things that we've wrote or influenced. And I think the idea is true because everyone does sort of suffer who runs a data and analytics team. We all run a factory of trying to get things out and we want to make, you know, really good cars and not really crappy AMC Pacer. And we all want to innovate. We all got new, more ideas in our head on the next model or the next idea that we can possibly get. And our customers just, they want things. They want it perfect. They think analytics is like Amazon. I should be able to order whatever I want and have it show up the next day. And so how do we live in that world? My perspective on it is that data ops provides the sort of methods at which you can live in that world. That is a glorious history. By the way, I came to know of y'all from the chef and the kitchen and the wooden spoons, not so much on the data kitchen on one of the conferences. This is pre-COVID when we all met face-to-face and talked face-to-face. Nice. I remember those days. You know, DevOps has picked up a lot of steam. As you know, the new and improved archetype is now called kind of the mesh architecture, where I don't care what technology you have. I don't care what capability you have. My intent is to understand a business process end to end and pretty much build a mesh archetype around it, platform, as some people call it. Why is this data ops very important for the data leaders? You mentioned they want insights fast. But the opposite of that concerns me a little bit, which is if people want insights fast, these are just people. Now you give them powerful tools like the data ops, you know, and and you put a manifesto around it. Are they now going to not think about insights and they're just going to think about delivery of insights because now I can do things faster? Why would data leaders care about these things, you know, in, in this fast moving technology world, if you will? So, you know, as a data leader, I think fundamentally we lead organizations who are trying to influence people, right? And how do you influence people with data? And that influence kind of has two levers on it. The first lever is very similar to software. You're building something, a set of charts, a PowerPoint, a dashboard, an Excel that you're giving to a customer telling a story. And like in software, you maybe want to tweak it so they understand it. You know, this should be a line chart, not a bar chart. We should visualize it in this way. On the other hand, different than software, you've got the data and does it actually truthfully express the idea that you're trying to get across? Is the prediction right? Is the way that you've segmented the data right? Is the way that you've grouped the data right? And so you caught between these very two opposite poles of one where software is like, You've got to be agile and get feedback on the application that you're giving them, but also is the data itself predicting it. And so those two poles actually make it really hard to resolve. And I think we've got to do both. And we've got to both explore the data to be able to figure out if it's right. And we've got to give it in a useful form that people understand. And so my perspective on data ops really just comes from my own leadership journey and comes from failing a lot of times to actually succeed because I think people want insight from data and they want the teams that work within to create that insight to give them trusted insight to be of service to them to answer their follow-up questions. And so how do you do that in a way where you're caught between these two poles? And I don't think the answer from my perspective is like buy another database or buy the latest, greatest ETL tool or ELT tool or data science tool. It's not about the individual contributor and, and their keyboard. It's about how the whole team can work better together. So this is about the delivery of insights and the agility to constantly improve on the insights. The core fundamentals of DevOps, but then you're now more focused on insight generation at the speed of thinking and putting that software kind of mindset as, you know, software development agility mindset into the data ops world, into the world of data. 
Yeah, you can think of another metaphor. It's like everything that you do with data in production, you could think of it as an assembly line. And that's where the idea of lean manufacturing and statistical process control comes in. Data comes in on one side and you go through a series of steps. It's streaming or batch. You have a model applied and you're sort of manufacturing and you want to have a low error rate manufacturing. You want your assembly line to be able to produce Toyota Corollas and not you know AMC Pacers from the 80s. But on the other hand, you have a team who is fundamentally trying to find a path through a highly complex space of data and find that nugget of insight. And so they want to be able to pick up a piece of that assembly line, if not the whole assembly line, and play with it, add new data, change it, refit the model, see if it's still predictive, and then deploy that back into production. And so these cycles of production, the cycle of deployment are actually kind of opposite of each other, right? If you've got something working in production, why change it? But your whole job is to create insight. And those are almost two opposite goals for any data leader. And so how do you resolve that opposite? And I think the ideas that we've tried to express in data ops help you provide a framework to think about how to work fast and not break things. There's a lot of this digital mindset, especially microservices and the mesh archetype that we talked about. You know, some people call it the design thinking. You empathize on the user on the other hand, and then you react to the user at the speed at which they are thinking, right? So that's kind of the design thinking mindset. You're now supporting the data and analytics portfolio or capabilities to that mindset. Since you're talking a lot about the DevOps mindset, let's get that out of the way. I would be interested to know, in your experience, what are the differences and similarities between DevOps and data ops? Is data ops an extended discipline over DevOps with similar principles and goals yet aligned to the more data and analytics tools and technologies? Can you help us understand the difference and the similarities? There's a lot of ops terms out there, right? And so it gets a bit overused. I think that they all come in the same basic package in that there's a bunch of people who work on a shared, technically complicated thing. And that shared, technically complicated thing could be an assembly line that makes a car. It could be a software system that has a back end and a front end. It could be a data and analytics pipeline that has ELT and models and viz. And so a bunch of people are working on that shared, technically complicated thing. And there's aspects of how you manage that team that are similar, that were discovered by Deming in the 50s and perfected by Toyota and went through a whole cycle with software and Agile and DevOps. And those ideas, I think, are really true. And I think how you manage your team with honesty, how you orchestrate and make sure that you look for bottlenecks, how you run based on metrics, I think are all the same basic kind of managerial idea. Now, your question is, how different is DevOps and data ops? And I think they're similar, but data ops extend some of the ideas of DevOps. And so, for instance, in DevOps, you have a development team and an ops team. It's a very one-to-one ratio. In data ops, you have lots of teams over the organization doing development. You'll have a team in the home office working on the data warehouse, maybe doing some standard reports. You'll have self-service teams all over the organization. You may have a data science team. And so you almost have this many-to-many relationship between dev and ops instead of one-to-one. I think the idea of data ops is to target the people who do data science and analytics, not software developers. And I think, you know, they're similar, but they have differences. If I understand correctly, this is very interesting. So DevOps historically have been more aligned to IT, while the product ownership and the product management is done by business, the application development, the software development, if you will, is still done by IT. So DevOps is more of an IT mindset. What you're saying here is, hey, data and analytics is not just for IT. IT will build it. But once they build it and deploy it into production, or even while building it, there are so many self-service analytical products out there that enables the non-technical person to go build something. The challenge is, how do they now operationalize it? 
So data ops takes those people into the loop as well, not just the IT guys. Did I get that right? Exactly. If you walk along the journey that data takes from source to value, right? In any data and analytic system, it could be sourced at a CRM, an ERP system, it's put in a database. And then finally, there's all these self-service tools out there that do data prep and data visualization. And at the very end, it gets to where it's going, your end customer. Now, a problem could happen in the source data, could happen in the IT warehouse, could happen in one of those self-service teams. How do you know where to find it? How do you know where the problem is? When you change something, how do you know your effect on things downstream in this complicated multi-user distributed system? And so for me, I think one of the ways we arrived at data ops is just to take that as an assumption. We're building these very complicated, multi-layered, multi-step systems. And how do you run those so that you can change them quickly and have low errors? And so the management philosophy is really about focusing on error rates and deployment cycle time and trying to figure out how to get your teams to collaborate together when they're all building this sort of complicated thing. No, that sounds fantastic. You know, I have to ask you this. Many times you've used the word people more than technology in your answers, right? So I want to ask you about this human in the loop concept of data ops. You know, as the world is going more towards automation, And again, containers, microservices, they're all ending towards automation and artificial intelligence. What you're talking about is how do I now support the people who are the core of these insight generation? How do you think about automation in the context of data ops? Is it still focused on automation or that end-to-end supply chain kind of pipeline or both? Yeah. Well, when I refer to people, I refer to the people who are part of that team who's been targeted with the organization about getting value out of data. And they have titles like data engineer and scientist and BI, and they have a whole bunch of titles and, and, and a whole bunch of tools. And so I think those people are really important. And those are sort of my fellow nerds who I think are suffering because they, they don't work well together. And it's not a fun life. And so I don't think it's solved. I think it could help, but it's not primarily solved by a better tool for an individual contributor. So automating someone's job to create a visualization or develop a model, that is good. It's nice, but it doesn't fundamentally change the fact that we've got lots of tools spanning central and decentral that we have a hard time getting in production, that we have a lot of errors. It doesn't actually fix the core problem. And so I think it is really about trying to build a system in which your team works with the tools they have that can help put together the data that you have in a very simple way so that people can understand it. And how do you get all those things to iterate quickly so that you can get value to your customer? Because that's where all of this aligns with Agile is like the fundamental idea is you're not building projects, you're, you're building products. And those products need to be designed and that design should get impact quickly from your end customer. And so value is the sort of key in all these things. So in this case, is it fair to say the automation is pretty much the same example analogy that you gave the supply chain, where it's that end-to-end thinking versus the human side comes in on one or more than one specific component in that supply chain that broke, that needs enhancement, whatever the reason is. They take that one piece out, they go fix it, whether it's a dashboard, whether it's ETL, ALT, whether it's a SQL query. Any one of these pipeline components, you can take it, you can fix it, and then throw it back to the supply chain or attach it back to the supply chain called data ops. And essentially, it's back to that whole end-to-end automation. Yeah, that's the idea, because it's so hard as an individual to kind of see the big picture. Like if you're tweaking a model or I'm changing my ETL, how do I know what's happening outside of me? And you need to build a system to kind of force that in and don't just like hope that things will work. In some ways, data ops is the anti-hope idea. Like if you're making a change and you hope it works, something's wrong. 
because you should prove that it works before it gets to your customer. And automation, testing, deployment automation is part of that. And it's not someone's fault that they sort of put their blinders on and tweak with their individual tool at their desktop. But I think, how do you get everyone to see all the aspects of the entire system? And I think that is where data ops can play because of these long connected tools that people have or this whole tool chain that people need to work with. That's fascinating. So we've talked a lot about the why, what's in it for me, kind of business objective, and then the what. Now let's go into the how. This is the nerdy side of me kind of taking over. Talk to me a little bit about the kind of storage and compute needed for data ops. Is it more intensive on one over the other? I've seen what Data Kitchen had put together from a product assembly perspective. What does it take for us to successfully implement from a storage and compute standpoint? Well, from my standpoint, you've got your tools that are processing data, right? You have a database and a persistent store, and those have specific sort of compute requirements and storage requirements that go with them. And so data ops doesn't fundamentally change that, right? Your, your tools are going to be acting upon the data. You know, really data ops is actually interested in very much the code that drives those tools as opposed to the data. And so what a data ops system does is store all the code or points to where that code is stored, injects it at the right point and says, hey, go run this. And then the data work happens within the process space of that tool or the database that that tool talks to. To implement data ops doesn't mean that you have more compute. What it does allow you to do actually is take advantage of, in a much easier way, the cloud or virtualized environments. Because a lot of times the best way to do analytics is to have something in production and then a variation of something that's in, in production. Maybe you have a thousand people on production and maybe you have one key person who's looking at exact copy of production, but a variation of it that has a tweak to a data set or a model. And you want them to look at it and say, hmm, is that right? Because you're giving them something quickly and trying to get feedback. And the management of lots of variations of your infrastructure is enabled by a cloud. And that could actually cost more for a short time, cost more compute and storage. But the benefit of virtual infrastructures in the cloud is you could try it out for a few hours and turn it off. And so that's really what we're trying to do is think of data and analytics as something that you can try lots of ideas out on and try them out in a way where you can get feedback from your customers. In some cases, do A-B tests. Some cases, just try something out. In some cases, it's just the developer's environment. But the management of all these variations is where the cost would come in, because fundamentally, to implement data ops, you're not replacing the tool chain that you have. You're putting something on top of that tool chain. In data platform, I'd be interested to know your perspective. So you take the top three clouds, right? GCP, Azure, and AWS. Each one of these guys have a solution called data platform. And each one of these guys, they have some native SaaS pass capabilities that they offer. There's also the aspect of somebody like Informatica or Talend or Tableau, these guys are more agnostic to these clouds and they can operate on all three clouds, right? When you put data ops on top of this mishmashed ecosystem, how does it perform? Does it natively interact with all of these clouds where they live or does it have to be somewhere else in another cloud where they go from cloud to cloud or you can choose your architecture? You know, the way we designed it is kind of a hub and spoke. And so what happens is you've got to kind of be interact with the cloud. You've got to have an agent that runs in every cloud. And then you've got to talk to the tools that are in that cloud. Now, they may have chosen Azure Data Factory or they might happen to like Informatica or, you know, they happen to like Power BI or Tableau and they have their tool chain right in that cloud. And that's a very interesting decision how companies end up at there. But oftentimes they've got more than one and they're moving from Informatica to Azure Data Factory. And I think that's fine, right? People love their tools and they're going to want to try out their new stuff. 
the tool itself that an individual contributor use has to be part of a system at which they can see the effects of changes in that tool. And when that tool is in production, that they can check and observe the systems that that is producing the right effects. And that's what a data ops system does. And sometimes the work that happens in these companies is unfortunately not all or one. It's not like, hey, let's turn on the light switch and everything's in Azure. It's like, well, we've got our old Teradata and Informatica stuff, and that's got 90% of the work. And we got 10% of Azure. And oh, yeah, there's these guys over here, and they're running in GCP. And how do you manage? Or they're running in a different flavor of Azure than my team is. And so a lot of time, the work that happens spans environments, which makes it doubly hard for teams to manage change and how to get it going. I think it presents a great opportunity, but also the sort of sprawl of tools that people have can be a challenge for organizations. Let us talk about the single most powerful tool in the world for analytics and the largest, Microsoft Excel. 10 out of 10 companies that I talk to, they have unlimited amount of power users building their own Excel analytics, right? They extract the data from whatever on-premise cloud and they build their own analytics. And the rules that they build and the dashboards that they build are lost because they don't take a cohesive view. They just take their own little worldview of what they do. Does data ops solve my problem of somebody running Excel file in their desktop? And now they don't need to do that anymore because as long as I have Office 365, I can run Excel in Office 365 and it can still be connected to this supply chain analogy that you gave before. A lot of ways, it's really hard to stop someone in Excel grabbing some data, putting it in Excel and doing some something with it. I'm not sure I know any technology that can help, let alone data ops. But the problem of the production and change of spreadsheets, right? Because a lot of spreadsheets get data imported in. Maybe they've got some VB. Maybe they've got some VLOOKUPs. And then they produce a report on the other end that lots of people see. And I think that can be managed as code. That can be automated. That can be tested in an automatic way. And at one point, we had sort of 5,000 sales reps from J&J each receiving three Excel reports a week. And that manufacturing process of reports back in 2006 was, if anything went wrong, these very extroverted sales reps would call me up personally and yell at me. And I didn't like getting yelled at. And so I think it certainly is possible to wrap whatever tool you have, Excel, or you know, if you're using Tableau and Alteryx, whatever desktop your tool, sort of wrap it up in a nice data ops blanket so you have version control, so it's tested, so it's deployed. And more importantly, that the people who are providing data to it have some visibility over if they change something, it's going to break. Because there's these contracts that happen between your central IT team and the people using the data. And how do you know that you haven't broken a contract? Is it the table? If you change a column name, how much do you break? And so that's where that linkage needs to be done. And it just starts with every bit of analytics that you have has to be sort of registered in one place, I think. And that should be Git, right? It should be version control. That's right. So on that note, because of the sprawl of data and the ease of use of technology, DevOps have recently turned into DevSecOps, Sec for security. Data is only going to get more and more stricter as we move past this COVID stage. So there's already pre-COVID, there was GDPR, CCPA. Now there's this urgency to share more data, personalize more contents. How does data ops consider security as a part of its ecosystem? I mean, write data to the right people at the right level? Yeah, don't get upset. All right, there's another term, data sec ops. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I not surprised? Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, and so uh, I, I may have been around and helped name that, but we've partnered with some companies. And so the idea is that security itself can be applied to a production system and that security can be put in code and it can be tested in production. 
If I'm going to say who my reports have visibility to, well, I can take that configuration and put it into Tableau Server, or put it into the database rules about who can log in and see which tables, and that should be as code and deployable. And the second part of impact is test data. Because if you're going to be able to develop quickly, well, you're going to need test data. And that test data should be like what your production data is. But oftentimes it can't be either because it's too large or there's GDP or privacy or limitations. How do you create an anonymous or at least filtered semi-anonymous data set? And there's a number of companies who are trying to actually do that for you. Some of them are doing it in a mathematical way. They're purely synthetic data that is statistically valid. Others are sort of screening the data. But those are the two impacts, right? How do you treat security as a deployable item? Like you're deploying your ETL, well, I'm going to deploy my security. How do you then create test data? And then there's a whole other part of how do you protect the data from access and sort of put a wrapper around it that sort of goes beyond data ops. But there's companies like Privatar and probably half a dozen others in that space. And I think it's actually really important. But, it, you know, security should be part of your development process. Absolutely. So what you're saying is anything that is codifiable or codable can be secure, as in if it's a piece of code that determines your security in a database and a Tableau server and what have you, that piece of code, which is a script, can be put in my data ops, data sec ops package and executed as a pipeline. Yeah, well, think of a really simple example. There's one table in a database, right? And that table is visualized in Tableau. Well, there's a couple other things that go with it, right? You've got security on that table, right? And you've got governance on that table. What's the meaning? What's in the catalog? And I think the term as code is a really important thing. You should have security as code. You should have governance as code. Data GovOps, and I'm sorry for another one, I'm smiling here. <laughs> We're part of the problem in the ops explosion here, not the solution. Yeah, and I think those things, if you're going to deploy a change to that table, right, and let's say I'm going to add a column to it. Well, that column's got to be in the database. I've got to fill it with data. I've got to show it in my Tableau. If you have column-based security, well, you've got to put the column-based security. And finally, you've got to put it in your data catalog. Those shouldn't be manual processes. The idea is, can you make that a coded package that you can deploy and script? And that level of automation reduces errors. And more importantly, it stops you from going to boring meetings. Because like, who wants to like review this stuff and have checklists and Word documents? I certainly like automation. It reduces a lot of human labor, right? Yeah. And like, it's just these meetings are boring and painful, right? And then what happens if you're any good, you end up going to a lot of these meetings because they want you to bless everyone's changes and like, hey, do you know the impact of this? And like, if you're having impact review boards or you have that one or two men or women in your organization happen to know where all the everything lies and they're they're suddenly involved in every meeting. And they're oftentimes are the most creative people in the organization. And then lo and behold, a week, a couple months later, that they've taken a new job because they're not doing what they want to do. They're just sitting in meetings and overseeing other people's work. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a committee called Change Advisory Board. They call it the CAB meetings. Yeah. It's two hours a week. God. Yeah, I hate those. Technology review boards, change control boards. You need a system that takes the place of that. That's right. Yep. That's very valuable people's time. It slows everyone down. Build a system to review it. And if you're having those boards, that's a problem. And if you want people to approve it, just send out an email saying, do you approve? The person clicks, yes, I approve. Record that in a repository and move on. Well, or better yet, allow the person who's going to make the change to run a suite of tests to prove that that change that they're going to make actually didn't affect anything and have that be those artifacts kept saying, OK, we ran the regression suite. I made this small change. In a lot of software companies, the way they benchmark how good they are is I hire a person who's 22 out of an undergraduate and within their first two weeks, have they made a commit that goes to production? 
And that's crazy. Like how many how many data and analytic organizations target that as like how fast can we get someone to make even a small change to production and how the velocity. And I think that velocity of change, the cycle time at which you can change things is really an important aspect of how well you can iterate, which is how well you can learn. And really trying to get your organization to learn, that's where the power is. Because we have all smart, creative people. They're getting frustrated because they're sitting in meetings instead of learning. Amen. Amen to that. Since you're talking about velocity, let's uh, deep dive on that a little bit. How do you measure data ops success? Look, with so much going on, you've got data sec ops, data gov ops, and data ops, and data analytic ops, and there are so many types of operational modules. But then you've got to have, if a CDO, chief data officer, is going to ask me, are we successful in implementing it? What are some of the key KPIs you'd lead them into so they can measure this? Yeah, we have kind of three that we focus on. One is production error rates. How often are you giving the wrong thing or the wrong data to your customer in some way, shape, or form? And the second is that cycle time. How fast can you deploy and how much it's proxy? What's the productivity of your team? And that could be measured by story points, feature points, or lines of code or deploys, which actually lends itself to productivity and collaboration. And so we've actually built a bunch of dashboards in our system. And I actually think measuring how your team works is really important. And it's kind of the irony We talk to companies all over the world and I ask them, hey, what is your error rates or how fast can you deploy? They don't know. (laughs) It's not measured. And like there's not a report that every CDO has saying, here's my operations report. And I think that's really important because if you want your customers to be data driven, well, you should be data driven about how you run your team. You mentioned error rates. Is this the data quality error rate you're talking about or is it a process failure error rate or somewhere both? It's both. Actually, that's a really good question. I kind of think of it as the superset. So yeah, you could have poor data. Somebody could forget something or a column gets all mushed up and suddenly your data has poor quality. Or the data could be perfect and something in processing the data didn't work. Or it could be the data could be the processing could be perfect, but your server could go down and you missed your SLA. Any one of those is kind of an error in my mind. One of the things I had to do early in my career with data and analytics is we had so many errors, I started a quality circle and we took every error we had of any form and put it on a spreadsheet. And every three weeks we sat around and said, is there one thing we can fix? And I think partly the change in organizations is getting people to love their errors so that they can then take the shame away from having errors and the dreaded, I gave wrong data for the last three weeks and didn't know it, (laughs) instead of hiding it, you know, kind of love it and, and learn from it and improve upon it and then build systems so it never happens again. And I've never found a customer who says, yep, it's an error. Yep, we did it. We know why. And we're going to put some automation, a test script in so it never happens again. And I've never had a customer who's been upset with that. Yeah, this is actually interesting because now you mentioned the two types of or three types of errors. So one is the system issue. Things go down, server goes down, software goes down and what have you. That's okay. That's pretty trackable. It's pretty obvious. The problem with data quality issues is that there's no closed loop, right? For example, I'm launching a campaign as a marketer. I need a full loop on did I launch the campaign successfully? How many customers signed up? And in that process, something as simple as nine out of 10 customers that signed up don't have their last name populated or their phone number is wrong, three out of 10 customer phone numbers wrong, which is a genuine data quality issue. We don't know if that issue is actually the way the customer signed up in a SharePoint form that I've exposed in my user interface, or we don't know if somewhere in the pipeline, some ETL tool has broken it, that it's not picked up that column and instead it's picked the right column, right? 
And that full loop of a campaign, a success behind the campaign, is what marketers who are the newer generation of data-driven marketers, if you will, they want, but they don't have that data in their hands. So this data ops will now look at it holistically and let me know where the breakage is. Kind of that lineage is what I'm looking for. Yeah, or the process, the thing that acts upon the data lineage. Think of Toyota, right? You got a bad tire in your car. Was it the supplier that gave you a bad tire or was it the guy who mounted it on the chassis or did the dealer screw it up? It's a problem. Let's find out where it is. And oftentimes it does end up with the supplier, but know about where the location is and be able to address it. Find it out early in the process because maybe it's a one week into a campaign and the SharePoint form can be fixed, right? You can put some validation on it and suddenly you've got phone numbers that have seven digits instead of three and your campaign works. And a lot of times marketers especially are kind of the cutting edge. And a lot of times they deal with sort of data quality issues and also data mastering issues because they're trying to get a unique customer record and that could be ahead of your MDM system. And that agility is so important. A lot of organizations, there's a gap. If you look at the analysts who are supporting marketing, think of them like the Air Force, right? And you think of IT as like the people who build the base. But what wins wars is logistics. It's the people who put the bombs on the plane and fill the gas and, and fix the planes when they go down. And like that logistics is really important. Yeah, it's boring and nerdy. I understand. But Google logistics wins wars. And you're going to see quotes from Sun Tzu and Eisenhower and Napoleon. And so I just think this sort of last mile logistics that happen in data and analytics, especially in marketing, is crucial because you want your fighter pilots, you want your analysts out there doing good work and answering questions with the marketers and business questions. But you need a team behind them and a system behind them to, to make that work. I'm in agreement. You can see me or you can hear me shake my head. <laughs> All right, let's jump into this data ops manifesto. So I've seen Agile Manifesto, and boy, have we executed it a few times. How did you come up with Data Ops Manifesto, and, and why is it so important in the context? Is it a way for you to communicate effectively for people who want to know about Data Ops? Is it a way of you saying, this is important, guys. We need to collectively think about this because data and analytics is everywhere, in everything, in every device. Why did you come up with that? Oh, because my life sucked for so many years. Honestly, I spent seven years in hell. And like I literally in 2006 was reading books by Deming and like trying to figure out why things were bad. And like for a long time, I thought it was my fault. I was a bad leader and my boss thought I was an idiot. You know, he'd ask me to do things. Hey, hey, Chris, go take this data and figure it out. And I'd work with a data scientist and an engineer. And we'd come back and say, ah, it's going to take us two weeks, like all happy. Like, hey, it's going to take us two weeks. And he'd look at me and go, Chris. That should take two hours and not two weeks. What, what was Deming's most popular quote? I believe he said, if you can't describe what you're doing as a process, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, my favorite one is the difference between special and process causes. And a lot of times what that means is 94% of the time, the system in which you work, the factory, the process is the fault of the problem and not the person who's working in the factory or in the process. And so oftentimes you want to, when things go wrong, you want to blame someone and then fire them. And I've done it. It's, you know, and it probably turned out to be the wrong thing to do. It's like, I was the manager, it's sort of my fault. I didn't build a system that could help these people. And so I think the data ops manifesto just came out of pain. And, and also, it also came out of, to be honest, we were just trying to convince people that data ops was a real thing. And so we ripped off the Agile Manifesto, some DevOps stuff, our experience. We sort of like zippered them together and put them in a Word doc and threw it out there. And so I'm continually surprised that we've got 10,000 people sign it. And it's nice and short. It's only 18 points, 18 sentences. And so it's a good short introduction to, to sort of what we think. Are you planning to push it into a larger organization like a PMI, for example, so you make it more heard and centralized? 
We've actually been working with a lot of big companies who've started data ops initiatives and their data ops transformation. They're being very intentional about how they get the organization to do it. And it's tough in a lot of cases, right? Because most people in data and analytics kind of walk in to work with a backpack full of tasks they got to get done. And they're pulling out a task. And if their backpack weighs less, then at the beginning of the day, they've done a good job. And so the problem is, is that just servicing those tasks, you miss the bigger problem of how do you build a system that allows you to service tasks faster with lower errors. And so I'm hopeful that the manifesto and other ideas and these organizations who are starting to think about it can find a way to help companies transform, much like they've done with DevOps and Agile on their IT side. And there has been, people go to lunch, right? Your data engineer goes to lunch with your guy working on your company website. And the company website guy says, oh, it picks up his phone and does a deploy. And the data engineer says, yeah, that takes me three months to do a deploy. And, and you know, the data engineer, he or she feels bad. It's like, wow, this guy just did it on his phone at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is what we're learning from the digital product development process. You know, the agility was born out of, digital transformation needs. And I'm consistently learning from these product designers, these cool kids, a lot of tips and tricks that, you know, we want to transfer over to data and analytics strategists and practitioners, if you will. Yeah. And I think that there's an emerging role of a data product manager, an emerging role of a data ops engineer, very similar to the role of kind of a product owner or product manager in IT software products and DevOps engineers. And I think these roles are actually really important for teams to staff. In a lot of ways, this stuff is being done. It's just we aren't giving enough time and attention to it. It's an upstream problem that we don't notice because we're not giving time and attention. We're just constantly running around trying to live in the world that we live in and not taking the time to say, well, if I just thought more intentionally and staffed a little bit on how we store our work, how we deploy our work, how we test our work, and we did it in a way that had some automation behind it, you can actually get much better results. And frankly, I don't ever want to work in a non-data ops way because it's just I talk to people and it just brings flashbacks back to me and I like have to have a shot of whiskey. <laughs> so I remember how bad my life was. <laughs> so I will tell you this, sometime when you become the next Steve Jobs, the next Elon Musk, because you're bringing this data ops manifesto portfolio to the world, I'm going to invite you to our next podcast and you have to sign up with us. You have to make sure you tell us how you became the next Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. I want to be the Steve Jobs of data ops engineers. You know, I think it's part of the work that we do that isn't valued. And I think it really is essential for team success. And so my own feeling is, like I said, I've suffered and I just don't like it. Just one example, I remember back in 2006, it was my 42nd birthday and I had a data engineer who worked for me who was 24 and we both had the same birthday. And he came into my office and cried because he just felt like he was a failure. He was a really smart guy, really hardworking. And like, how do you, just as a person, you want to make it so that this person can feel successful. Right. And how do you build a system? And it took me many, many years to figure out what that means. And so I don't know if you've had the experience of having one of your teams cry. And when you actually believe them that these problems are fundamentally leadership problems. So that means it's your fault. Unfortunately, I have. So I know what you mean. All right. I've got a quick lightning round of personal questions for you. Not too many. Oh, sure. Yeah. A couple of uh, books or podcasts that you recommend. There's actually a good book by Harvinder Atwal about data ops that I really like. I also like Gene Kim. He wrote The Phoenix Project and The Unicorn Project. I love, yep. I'm a big fan of The Phoenix Project. Yeah, and actually there's a chapter 13 in the, in, or one of the chapters in The Unicorn Project that revolves around data and data and analytic teams. Okay, I got to go check that out. What did you learn? Did you do anything special during the COVID lockdown? 
learn to play guitar, anything different than your professional life? Two things. One is we started to get these box dinners that are delivered that actually are really good. And it turns out I'm cooking. So my wife has found a way to get me to cook. And then second, I'm on my third month going to a gym. And I used to go to a gym only because I wanted to lift weights as some way of signaling to get a mate. But now I'm actually going because I enjoy it. So that, that's that is quite quite an accomplishment. <laughs> Three months. That's my, my newest record. It's always been like I've gotten a girlfriend. So, you know, I've been married now for 25 years, so I don't have to worry about a girlfriend. But like that's the last time I actually really went to a gym. Congratulations again on the three months timeline. All right. Before we close out, any last words from your side, Chris, on advice to our listeners, especially data executives who are starting this journey or kind of want to move to that next steps? I think there's a lot of stuff out there on data ops. And I think just sift and winnow. There's a lot of words out there and a lot of marketing. But I think the stuff that some of the analysts are writing, other companies are right. I think our, our book is quite good to guide you through the sort of maze of data ops ideas out there. How can they find you, Chris? Data Kitchen. Type the word data ops, Google it. The first couple of links are ours or just type data kitchen in Google. That is fantastic. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. DataOps is a trend to watch out for data and analytics, becoming the key for personalization, kind of getting that first mover advantage. We can hear the passion from you, Chris, and the thought leadership, both on the professional and the personal stories you shared. I would advise our listeners to get a hold of him through LinkedIn and any other information you need from datakitchen.io. Chris, thank you for being on the show. All right. Thank you for the opportunity. And it was a great conversation. Thanks for tuning in to Intelligent Data with Arvind Morali. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. You can find this season along with show notes at Perficient.com or listen to this series on top podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon. 